Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This week on the podcast, we continue with our theme, Serving the Public Interest. We're talking with local elected officials and non-elected government officials about what motivated them to work in government and what they're doing to increase civic engagement and break down barriers in their communities. And this week, um, we're talking with someone who has a ton of experience working in community with local community-based organizations, statewide organizations. It's just completely impressive. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I think our listeners will really like about this episode is we're talking to the uh, Portage County treasurer. And of course, people hear treasurer and they go, right. You know, nobody wants to hear (laughs) about money and and tax revenues and, and, and property taxes and all that kind of stuff. But I think that they'll find the interview with uh, Brad really interesting because he brings this just wealth of uh, background working with, you know, community organizations, nonprofit organizations from just a, a wide variety of, uh, of places to play on this kind of historic moment uh, where he is serving as a county treasurer during a pandemic and a recession and how continuing this work and to engage the community really just kind of brings to bear all of his background and all of his experience so that he can continue, um, you know, serving in the role that he was elected to. Yeah, we're really excited to have with us Brad Cromus. All right. We're really excited to be here today with Brad Cromus, uh, who assumed his duties as Portage County Treasurer in February 2015 and was recently elected by Portage County voters to a second full term. Since taking office, Brad has sought to manage his office efficiently and transparently and to connect Portage County residents to the information they need to make sound financial choices. Brad earned his bachelor's degree from Hiram College in Northern Portage County, a master's degree in public policy and management from John Glenn School of Public Affairs at Ohio State, and a Juris Doctorate from the Moritz College of Law. He earned recognition as a certified government financial manager from the Association of Government Accountants in 2016. He's also taken an active role in the County Treasurer's Association of Ohio, serving on that body's legislative committee and working to shape state policy to ensure that local governments have the resources they need to serve residents. Brad is the immediate past president of the Board of Trustees of the United Way of Portage County, past president of Ravenna Kiwanis Club, and member of the Community Action Council of Portage. Super excited to have you here today. Thank you. Super excited to be here. So I just want to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your role as Portage County Treasurer and in particular, some of the duties that you have in this position. 
Yeah, it's it's one that not a lot of people know a lot about, and they confuse it with other roles in county government pretty regularly. So um, I appreciate your asking. The, the roles of the county treasurer are basically three. Um, we are the county's tax collector, so that's primarily property taxes. So your school board levies, your roads and bridges, police and fire sometimes, um, those sorts of things are all supported by property tax. We do about um, $200 million in collections every year uh, in support of our property tax taxes that support all of those services throughout Portage County. Um, so that's thing one. Thing two is we are the county's banker. So once we have all of those monies in the county treasury, it's our job to make sure that they're not going anywhere that they're not supposed to. You know, we split that duty in some respects with the county auditor. Um, it's our job to release funds and we can only do that when they have a governmental purpose that they've identified for the funding. So um, that's our banker role. And then we are also the county's chief investment officer. So um, we have a pool of what are called inactive funds, which are able to generate some investment income and revenue for us. And the thought process there is that that can keep tax levies lower than they would otherwise be um, by, you know, generating some investment revenue. Um, We're pretty limited in what we can invest in. I'm not out there in the stock market, you know, doing anything fun or exciting, but, um, but that is the other, other leg of the stool for us. So those are kind of the three main things. Um, The county treasurer is also involved in a lot of other county government um, activities. I sit on the budget commission with the auditor and the prosecutor, and we look at all of the political subdivisions in the county to see, you know, do you have enough money to do what you plan to do this year? Um, I'm on the county land bank board, and the land bank's job is to take vacant, blighted, delinquent properties and um, cure whatever issue may be there and then return them to productive use. So um, those are kind of the the highlight extras. Um, There are many other things, obviously, that we're involved with, but those are kind of the, the main things. Now, I mean, you've just been heavily engaged in, uh, you know, community organizations uh, broad and wide. Um, What kind of drew you to this work? And how did you then kind of decide to run for elected office? Yeah, so for me, um, public service is all about you know, where can I do the most good for the most people for as long as I can, right? So like, that's kind of been my my motivating belief system for a long time. My mom was a social worker uh, and worked for the Job and Family Services Department in the county I grew up in for 30 years. Uh, My dad was really active in our church and, you know, did a bunch of uh, different sort of blue collar work throughout his career. But even though he was often very busy and very tired from being out on the farm or, you know, being a mechanic all day long or whatever it might have been, always found time to engage in our community and give back through things like the crop walk and, you know, our church activities and those things. So those examples are really strong for me. And our grand, my grandfather came to live with us when I was pretty young, I think four, uh, and was living with us for most of, most of my childhood. And he was a Korean War veteran and a member of the Teamsters Union. Um, you know, so from him, I kind of got that, that, that service model also. Um, and um, his perspectives kind of colored a lot of, of the way that I consumed news as a kid, right? And that kind of obviously redounds later on. But um, all of those things, I think uh, I mentioned all that because I think that, that ethos of, of service and community um, was a really big part of my upbringing. And that's kind of what I, I, I had wanted to do with my career for a very long time. The reason I ended up coming into elected office is, you know, I had been previously at the board of elections in Portage County for three years as a deputy director. That work was really great. And I, you know, love the electoral process and kind of the minutia that are involved in making sure that the ballots are counted accurately and consistently this year, especially, right? Like we're all learning more probably than we ever wanted to know about how the nuts and bolts of that work. But 
you know, that work was really good and interesting, but I, I felt like there was more that I could do. And the va- a vacancy came for county treasurer um, when the previous county treasurer was elected to a different office. And I saw this one as an opportunity to really make an impact in people's lives in a direct way. You know, so much of what we do is, is finance related and over and above, you know, the tax collection um, piece of it, you know, which is not a small thing, obviously, for most folks. Um, you know, we have the capacity because we do that. We interact with a lot of banks. We interact with investment managers. Um, you know, we are kind of in a position to be a clearinghouse of information. And my perspective coming into office was we could really do a, a, a better job of sharing that information back out to the public and making sure that people, you know, have resources available to them to make good financial decisions. So, you know, that's that's why I chose to seek this office. I've been really excited about some of the progress we've been able to make in the past five years that I've been there. Um, and there's more to do in the coming term that I'm, that I'm pretty stoked about also, but that's, that's, uh, that's how I got to this place. That's fantastic. So I want to ask, and this is maybe a little bit of a throwback, but um, I want to ask a little bit about your um, experiences at Hiram college. Cause from what I understand, you were a two term president of the student Senate at Hiram. Can you talk us through a little bit about how you see a connection between, you know, serving in this um, student government role and your current work in elected office? <laughs> yeah, it's funny how, how many parallels there are, right? Like if I if I had told my college self that I would eventually be an elected official and that so much of what I'm experiencing would be the same sorts of questions and issues, I don't know that I would have believed it at the time. But, you know, it's it's it's, it's a lot of people is what it comes down to, you know, the whatever the discrete problem might be, there's going to be people that are going to have a different perspective than you have. And they are going to often be vocal about that and very passionate about that. And you've got to figure out a way to, to manage that, whether that is, you know, finding a common ground or, you know, directing around that issue to something that you can agree on, or, you know, even if it's just figuring out a way to be as confrontational, confrontational in a nice way, Um, you know, getting people to sort of at least understand why the decision was made if they don't agree with it. You know, that's all part and parcel of of what we do every day in the in the county treasurer's office and in county government. You know, I I think that's one of the things that's great about a small school like Hiram College is you have to confront people whose opinions are not yours. Like there is very little opportunity to create a bubble around yourself in a place like Hiram. You really have to um, get comfortable speaking outside of, of your own experience. And, you know, as I kind of think about where we are in the country, this is maybe a little bit further of a field than we were planning on getting today, but so much of the challenge I see that faces us going forward is, is getting outside of our bubbles and the, the information ecosystems we create for ourselves. You know, there's, there's so much, capacity now that we have that we didn't have before to sort of wall ourselves off and just live in an echo chamber. And that's really not, you know, a good way for us to, to, to make progress locally at the state nationally, you know, cause that's just not how democracies work. So um, we're going to have to figure that out, but no, I mean, there's so much that happened at Hiram that, that I use every day. It's really interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, so Speaking of like operating in a bubble, we're recording this still, listeners, in the midst of our public health crisis and and the COVID-19 pandemic. How has COVID shaped your work? And and, I mean, the work of the county at large, especially when you do have these bubbles of people operating in uh, where where they may not necessarily understand the county as a place to get information uh, or to help during a time of public health crisis. 
Yeah, we've really had to adjust um, pretty significantly. And the the fortunate thing for us in the treasurer's office is our calendar kind of breaks down around two poll points. So we have our tax collection that happens in January, February, and then a second half tax collection that happens in um, June, July. So we were done with most of our, our, our big heavy lift when COVID broke in America, um, right around St. Patrick's Day. Um, which gave us an opportunity to kind of lead on how, how we would respond um, with respect to the office's operations. So, you know, would we close down? If we did close down, what would payments look like? Because we still have a statutory duty to collect payments and be open to receive payments. You know, how are we going to manage that? So I worked really closely with Kathleen Clyde, who is our county commissioner, and Ryan Shackelford at the Emergency Management Agency and some other folks on you know, how we were going to kind of manage that in our office. And then we were actually able to create a model that was exportable for other offices to use and take advantage of as they made their own plans. So, you know, that all kind of worked out really well timing wise for us. But, you know, we had to shift from a tax collection process that is in large part in person where folks line up and they, they give us checks or cash. And, you know, we're doing a lot of over the counter face to face interaction to a model that was almost entirely male and electronic. You know, so, you know, that was a big shift for us. One of the things that I'm, I'm proud of that we were able to, we were able to pivot that way because uh, of some work that we did earlier on in my term to uh, expand the number of options we have for electronic payment. We created a website payment portal that is um, kind of a one-stop shop. So we expanded to be able to take credit cards and debit cards. You know, we, we improved our, our phone system. So all of that work on the front end, you know, we weren't doing that in planning for a pandemic, but it turned out to be really useful for us when we had to pivot away and do some different, different things this time, you know, and we, we uh, were happy, happy with how that went. Now, having said that, obviously there are hiccups, right? Like we have a lot of farmers in Portage County and a lot of farmers do a lot of cash business. And a lot of those folks wanted to pay in cash. So there again, it was an education process. It's a conversation we're having about here's the reason we made the decision we made. You know, we made a decision not to take cash for our summer collection because at the time there was a lot of conversation around whether or not surface transmission was serious for the virus. That was not easy and a a thing that we had a lot of tough conversations about, but we got through it. You know, we were kind of hoping we'd be done by this point, right? But here we are, it's December of 2020 and we are in the same place. So we are now looking at what are we doing for this January's collection? Because that's coming up in just about a month. So you're having these same sort of processes and sets of conversations. I'm talking to my staff. I'm talking with treasurers from around the state of Ohio, other electeds who have a, a stake in, in how we manage our, our space and trying to come up with a plan. I think we're going to be in a good spot that's going to have a little bit of lessons learned from the past year. But, you know, it's, it's a constant learning process for us. And uh, in terms of how the virus impacted county operations generally, I think that you you would hear the same conversation from a lot of other offices, right? Like we made the decisions that we made in March to shut down and do some operations changes. Shortly after that happened, the county shut down the building, you know, so for a large part of the year, the county building has been closed. The administration building has with the exception of appointments. Um, you know, whether or not that continues is going to be a big question mark. Um, because we've had an election that intervened, we're going to have new elected officials coming in that may have a different perspective about how to best manage the health crisis. And, and that'll be kind of a, an adjustment point 
uh, as well. So, you know, I, I, I said all that I just said about the plan we made and how we worked it out and my planning for January a month from now, but early in January, I'm going to have new people to work with and they might think different things. So we're going to have to be flexible uh, and, and try to work on that. But that's, it's part of the gig. Are there any um, projected revenue uh, issues in terms of, because I mean, li- listen, in, at the same time that we're in a pandemic, we're in uh, an economic potential, you know, recession. So are there issues pertaining to, you know, revenue that, that your office will also have to kind of think about dealing with? Yeah, for sure. And we've, we've been thinking about that, you know, from early on in the crisis. So fortunately we've had good conversations and good data with the state tax commissioner and the state budget office, our auditor who works with those folks on our sales tax revenues, you know, so we've been, um, I think doing a pretty, pretty good job of staying in touch with people and projecting those things out. Um, having said that every recession is different and every economic, uh, economic hiccup is a little bit different. So it's hard for us to really project where we're going to be. There has never really been one that coincided with a health outbreak before, at least in like useful data history. So we're looking back at what happened in the 0809 recession as kind of a marker to sort of see where we're going to be. It looks like we're we're gonna see any impact we're going to see next year. And I've been very um, trying to be as clear as possible with other subdivisions we talked to about that because we're kind of the bank for your school district and your city and your village, you know, to just sort of say, our collections are probably coming down. We have been surprised to this point by how durable collections have been. You know, so I think it's one of those things where people prioritize tax payment because they know that there are serious consequences if they are unable to make those payments. There's also been money flowing into the economy in terms of some of the relief from this from the state and federal side. You know, so that has kind of kept us afloat. I think that that is coming to a conclusion. You know, or at least it looks like it's going to maybe we'll get some more federal stimulus money. Maybe we won't. But that certainly impacts where we are. You know, what the state of Ohio ultimately chooses to do impacts where we are. And one of the things that that we're really focused on right now, you know, again, because we deal with property taxes and that means housing in most respects, you know, so we're really focused on on what we can do to help keep people in their homes um, and avoid foreclosure actions. We put a moratorium in place locally before there was one state or nationally on our foreclosure actions at the treasurer's office that's going to carry forward. Um, and we're thinking now about, okay, how can we best respond to what is likely to be a housing crisis in the future so that we're being useful? So we're thinking about that. One of the things I'm, I'm proud of my colleagues in the commissioner's office for having done recently is some COVID-19 relief. So, you know, coming through the state of Ohio and CARES Act money that was federal, you know, they freed up some funding to help people pay their rent and pay their mortgage and their utilities. You know, so that money is still out there and it's flowing into the community. I just got word today that there's going to be somewhere around $700,000 likely that will be coming to Portage County in the coming year to sort of do the same stuff. You know, so I'm optimistic that some of those, the, the worst impacts will be, will be mitigated, but it's certainly something we're keeping an eye on and being careful about over and above just the county's budget, right? Like people's personal budgets matter because that ultimately is the county's budget. So. Yes. So you're talking, you know, you, you kind of ended by talking about recognizing that the role that you are serving is it has broad impacts, right? Like that, that, uh, that the, the work that you're doing has ramifications for housing um, and being able to stay in one's house. 
and and maybe I'm pivoting, but maybe I'm not. So, uh, but I want to ask a little bit about your previous work and kind of the legal uh, side. And so you served as the vice president of the Public Interest Law Foundation, and which is a group dedicated to providing access to legal services for underprivileged communities, as well as a fellow for the Legal Aid Society of Columbus. Can you tell us a little bit about those organizations and your time there and maybe how that's shaped some of the conversations we were just having? Yeah, well, and I think it goes back to, you know, my upbringing in a lot of respects, right? Like my mother was a a caseworker for Job and Family Services. So she dealt with people who were dealing with poverty every single day um, of her career. And so watching that as I grew up and kind of the impacts, you know, that had on her, the stories she would tell, seeing people that she would interact with in the, in public and, and, and have to be careful about how she interacted, you know, based on, on those relationships, um, informs a lot of, informed, informed a lot of my perspective. And it's what I, you know, it's part of why I'm interested in those things. So the Public Interest Law Foundation at Ohio State exists to help young attorneys who are in law school with finding positions with entities that they might not otherwise have an opportunity to do work with because of financial considerations. So, so much of our legal system is set up to, you know, kind of protect the rights and interests of people who can pay for the privilege of having their rights and interests protected. That's what PILF is all about. Um, And so, you know, being able to help raise money for that was really great. Um, I was actually, you know, I raised for my own because I was working for the Legal uh, Legal Aid Society in Columbus. Um, So some of those PILF dollars supported my fellowship. And then, you know, that work was all about foreclosure prevention and um, utility shutoffs and, and working with people to make sure that they, you know, were able to stay in their homes. So I, I think that they're all really interconnected and, and I, I, I'm, I'm proud that I got a chance to do that. But, you know, certainly those experiences in law school have informed the way that I approach my job now because I've seen the other side of it. I've interacted with people who, you know, who have had a hardship and that's the reason they're unable to pay their bills and that begins to snowball, you know, and so I, I, I have the empathy and the compassion that comes from those experiences. And I think it's super important for people that are in positions like mine to understand that people aren't just a tax bill. You know, they're not just um, a pile of money on the other side of the piece of paper that you've got to collect from. You know, there are real stories that we've got to, got to consider. And it's a balancing act, you know, because the other side of it is we are statutorily mandated our reason for existing is to collect tax revenues that support services people rely on you know the firefighters don't show up at your house if they don't have enough money to put gas in the fire truck so you know that's all really real and we've tried to be pretty conscientious about the way that we balance those interests but it's it's an ongoing kind of recalibration thing but that frame is 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 so important and i'm you know i i would advocate to any other person in this position that that's that's one of the things we have to keep top of mind now, I mean, we're, we're also just past an election um, where, I, I mean, a record number of voters voted. Uh, and I'm kind of curious to pick your brain about your experience with, you know, encouraging people to register and then to go vote. So you were a campaign field director and worked with the, the Ohio Democratic Party to develop the Student Voting Bill of Rights, uh, which was intended, right, to educate students about Ohio's election laws and then encourage them to go out and vote. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about that process and what it looked like? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I think is worth noting is that this election was unlike any we have ever had and probably will ever have because of COVID. So, so much of what we would normally do in an election cycle just didn't happen this time in terms of voter registration drives and door knocking and those sorts of things. You know, a lot of politics is person to person, face to face sort of interaction. And that was not 
on the table for COVID. So, you know, that's, that's one of the things I have been thinking about as I've reviewed what happened in, in November, you know, for my own personal edification and planning the path forward, you know, hopefully those things aren't, aren't part of our equation going forward. But, you know, the student voting bill of rights work was, was really cool as a law student to get a chance to sit down and do that with, with some really, really sharp legal minds from some of the biggest firms in the state and people from around the country who, you know, in 2000 and, and um, you know, eight, nine, ten. Ohio was the swing swing state in a lot of respects. So it was just an invaluable experience. But you know, the reason that we had to do that work is that college students are historically a demographic that struggles um, to engage. We we made the voting age eighteen in the nineteen seventies, and voter participation in that group has been low since inception. So what that work was directed at was sort of trying to remove as many barriers to participation in the process as, as was possible. So, you know, we told people about what sorts of ID you could bring to the polls. We, you know, tried to make sure that they knew that they didn't have to show a certain one. Like you don't have to have a driver's license with your current address on it. You can use a utility bill or some other thing, you know, so making sure that college students had that information was, was really pretty critical. Um, and there are parallels to that that happen all over the place, you know, with respect to community of color or other groups that are historically disenfranchised. Um, There's a lot of really good work that goes on in Ohio and around the country on trying to engage those folks in the process. And I think some of that um, longer term work started to bear some fruit this year, right, with the number of participants in the process that we had. So hopefully that continues going forward. You know, it's a constant back and forth, like any political process is, um, trying to expand the franchise to as many people as possible and remove as many barriers as possible um, has kind of been my lens and the one that, that I'm, I'm passionate about and, and excited that we've got good people working on, but, you know, to be able to contribute to that, that process at the state level was, was a real gift for me. Now I'm curious what you think about. Um, so you're in Portage, which is where Kent State University is located. So clearly there are, you know, university students that are important to voting process within that County. Uh, my home state of Arizona, there was a state Senator a few years back that was trying to prevent university students from being able to vote with the argument that they're not, you know, real residents. Uh, <laughs> they don't have enough invested in the community. As somebody who who must speak to college students, I mean, you've done it, obviously, in, in, in developing the Voting Bill of Rights, but even now, they're your constituents. What is the importance of university students uh, as your constituents and being able to have that right to vote? Yeah. Well, and you know, here again, that, that story is age as old as time. You know, um, we, we have records at the board of elections office in Portage County from the 1970s of exactly that conversation, right? Like these students aren't from here. They don't live here. They shouldn't vote here, you know, because my taxes should not be impacted by this kid basically. Right. So that is still going on. And it's a, it's a thing we have to push back on. They are our constituents at the end of the day. You know, most college students live in the communities where they go to school at least nine months of the year. You know, they're, they're driving on the roads, they're going to the restaurants, they're buying things at the retail shops, you know, all of the things that are impacted by local government, they are experiencing. And so they should have a voice in the process. Um, and that's why, you know, I think, that we have to be conscientious about trying to engage students regularly 
at Kent at Hiram all over the place because they are just as much a part of our community as anybody else. And frankly, you know, they add a lot of perspective and, and diversity that we wouldn't otherwise have, right? Like that's a thing to be celebrated uh, and to enjoy because that's to everybody's benefit at the end of the day. So on the Growing Democracy podcast and in part of the project more broadly, we're really, really interested in the power of civic and political engagement. So I want to ask, from your perspective as the treasurer and chair of the board of trustees of the United Way of Portage County, as well as member of the board of the county uh, <laughs> county community action council of Portage County, why is civic engagement important? Can you tell us a little bit about civic engagement efforts and your efforts in particular in Portage County? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and what I would say to people about why it's so important to be civically engaged is this community is only going to be what we make it, right? And so it's up to each of us to be an active part of that conversation, you know, in terms of of what we're going to prioritize, what sort of things are important to us. So that's why I think it's it's you know, it's been my privilege to be involved with the United Way, which which does so much work on driving resources behind education and income, you know, helping people stabilize their incomes and and public health and just sort of all of these public goods that are so important that if we are able to effectively address really we're down to everybody's benefit. If we have a healthier, more educated, more financially stable community, you know, that's going to be a great thing for all of us. And so those goals are, are super important. Um, the community action council is another one, you know, their entire focus is on poverty alleviation. That entity is part of a movement that sprung out of the war on poverty in the 1960s. And it's still going on. You know, there are a lot of folks in the community who are struggling and um, raising the baseline and making sure that everybody has, has dignity and a decent standard of living is what we should all strive for. Like that's the entire point of the project of having a community. Otherwise we'd all be out in the woods living in, you know, stick shelters and, and like stabbing whatever thing walks by the, the hut, you know, to like eat. So that's like, ultimately our whole community is, is going to be what we make it. And it's, it's so important for us to do that. You know, being the County treasurer gives me a platform from which I can, I can be active and, in, and engaged in those things. And it's a real privilege for me to do it. So I try to say yes whenever possible, because that's, that's the calling. Now, you're in a unique position because you're an elected official now and you're working in county government, but you've also worked, uh, I mean, you have a long history working in the nonprofit sector. Uh, Both of these are important in just, I mean, so many ways to things like, you know, poverty alleviation, but issues, uh, alleviating issues that are important in the community. How are you using your current position to kind of create bridges between these two potentially, right, disparate organizations, government and, and nonprofit sector? Yeah, I and I I I'd go back to what I said before about this work being completely about relationships and, you know, person to person interaction. So, when you are engaged in public life as a government official or uh or whatever way that whatever that looks like for you, you're going to be meeting people from all sorts of different sectors, right? Whether that's the manufacturing sector or the retail sector or people who work in nonprofits on specific issues. So, you know, we have an opportunity to really draw those those connections and bring people together who might not otherwise interact based on our relationships and who we know and how we know them. So that's it's a. it's so important to, to addressing any of these sorts of things. And even if it's, you know, not something as, as kind of state and august is like 
poverty alleviation or this kind of big conceptual thing. Even if it's just trying to put on a good community festival or a car show, like knowing who to call to make sure that the car show is successful and that people aren't driving through the middle of it and banging into each other. You know, we, we have a really big one in Ravenna that draws like 15,000 people to the city every year. Um, and that came out of government work. So it's, it's run by the regional planning commission director. And then there's a commissioner on the board, myself and a bunch of business people. Um, but coming together and sort of saying, you know, this community really needs something to come together around. This would be a really great event. And then organically drawing people in that we know from our circles to create this really cool thing that's, that's been happening in Ravenna for the past five years. So, you know, that's, that's an example of, of what that work looks like, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's important that we're doing that. Does that answer the question? I'm not sure that it gets to what you're after, but... No, that absolutely does. It absolutely does. Thank you. Okay, great. Brad, so I have a quick follow-up question about that. One of the other organizations that I think I remember reading um, that you're associated with is the Financial Literacy Festival. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how that also connects to your work around bringing communities together? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that speaks to the the goal I identified about giving residents the tools they need to make sound financial decisions, right? So the Financial Wellness Fair is something that we created in 2015-16 that is based on a nonprofit in Ashtabula County that does one for member entities employees. So like if someone is struggling at work um, because of financial reasons that they identify that's what the issue is, they can go to this event and pick up some tips and go back to work. What we wanted to do is expand that and make it totally public and open to anybody who wants to participate. And as part of doing that, we reached out to our community partners at local banks and financial advisors and insurance offices um, and a bunch of other you know, f- personal finance related folks and ask them to participate and come in and teach half hour classes on, you know, what insurance do I need or what does debt management look like or how do I manage my credit? And it's been, it's been really great to see the community respond to that. Um, Our service providers have always stepped up and we've had a full slate every year. Um, And then this past year, because we had COVID, you know, it's traditionally been an in-person event where we've taken a Saturday morning and done a half a day where people can show up and get prizes and, and kind of interact that way. We had to go fully online um, from a public health standpoint. And it turned out great. You know, we did half hour recordings. People were able to look at them at their leisure. And we've had something like 1600 views on the videos that we produce. So, you know, it's really great. There's information about that on our our official um, treasurer's office website um, that folks can check out if they want to see what we did. But um, I'm really proud of that because I think it's a great example of the way in which, you know, community entities can come together to, to advance a a goal that we all share. So you have been involved in lots of different ways. And I think this has been such a rewarding and uh, conversation to have, to, to think about all the different ways in which people are engaged politically, engaged civically, your own pathway to your to elected office. But I want my last question to you is just, do you have any final words of wisdom, comments to our listeners that you want to have them take away from this conversation? <laughs> wisdom is a strong word that's loaded no so i you know just my my perspective on on all of this is that is that we you should be prepared to say yes right so like whatever experiences you have can inform in a positive way the way that you interact with other people so making sure that those are as positive as you can make them and where they're negative learn from them so that when you are in a position to 
do something for others or, or to advance that you're, you have the capacity to say yes and to, uh, and to thrive and, and, and really succeed when you do it. And then the other kind of element of that is to say yes sometimes to things that maybe aren't in your wheelhouse, right? Like one of the things that I did that I'm, I'm glad I had an opportunity to do was I served as the secretary of um, the board for Hiram Farm which is for adults with autism spectrum disorders. Uh, and it's, they do tremendous work in helping people to advance and to deal with uh, those issues and, and, and have meaningful labor that they, can, that they can do and contribute back to the community with. That is, you know, I don't know any folks in my direct circle who have autism spectrum disorders. Um, that's not a thing I would have engaged with ordinarily, but I knew a couple people on the board. I knew that they had a need for someone with some legal background and some financial background to serve. And I was, I was in a position to be able to say yes to that opportunity. And I learned so much from that that's been applicable in other places. So, you know, that's, that's the lesson of, uh, of my career. I think that I keep coming back to over and over again, and that I'm trying to hold on to and take with me into the future is that, um, you know, you just need to be um, prepared to, to pr- be prepared to say yes. And then to say yes, ultimately, because it, it benefits you and everybody else. I love that. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was such a pleasure having you on. My pleasure. Thanks very much. And thanks for doing this work. It's so important. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio, and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation with Kathleen Clyde about serving the public interest.